let's start uh, start in the book of Second Peter. Praise God. We're going to talk a little bit tonight. We'll see how far we get, but we're going to talk a little bit about uh, God's purpose for the church, God's purpose for us as a church, God's purpose uh, for you being a part of a church and not just, not just showing up for a meeting. Do you know that, that uh, you're not just called to show up for uh, a service just so you can fill some seats or just so you can uh, be a part of a program, but, but God has called you to something deeper. God's called you to be a, a part of a building, a part of a body. Those are two terms that show up often in the New Testament. Um, talking about what God has called his people. Sometimes you see it as a body, and sometimes you see it as a building. You find the Apostle Paul, God used, spoke through him and used the, uh, the example of, of a body quite often. Sometimes through the Apostle Peter, he uses building, but through the Apostle Paul, he uses, he uses building as well. That uh, whether or not we're a body or a building, I believe we're both, uh, God's building us together. If you were stranded on a desert island, God's presence would be there. David said, where can I run from your presence? Where could I go that your presence isn't there? He said, if I were even to go down to the grave, your presence would be there. There's nowhere to escape from your presence. If you were on a desert island, you could have a wonderful time in the Lord. But you're not on a desert island. And so there is something that God expects of you because you're not on a desert island, you're around other believers. He has joined you with other believers. So while it's permissible for you to be on a desert island and be the only one there to just say, well, I'm having church by myself, it's not a good idea to try that when God's put you in a body. Because His best for you is to be in a body that complements each other, that the arm and the leg and the, and, the, and the tongue and the ears all work together. Now, we've talked about this fact before, that when you're running a race, your arms are doing something than your head's doing. Your arms are doing something than your legs are doing. Your lungs are doing something totally different than the rest of your body. Your heart's doing something. And they all seem like different jobs. The heart is not trying to match the rhythm of your feet. Right? If you start running fast enough, your heart's going a lot faster than your feet are going. Your arms are not trying to, uh, you're, you're not trying to use your arms on, to hit that hard track and trying to run on all fours. And so your arms are not trying to be the legs. They're, they're doing something totally different. In the body of Christ, you'll find yourself doing something different than other people because you're uniquely gifted and uniquely called. It won't look like everybody else. We're not a bunch of clones or robots that all just goose walk through life and do the same exact thing and turn our heads at the same moment. We have unique tasks, but they should all complement one another so that there's a goal ahead and everything that we're doing, as different as it seems, as unique as it seems, will be bringing us closer to that finish line. And the only way we do that is if we, are, if we achieve what the Bible calls unity of the Spirit. And you know, unity of the Spirit, we talked about this before, but unity is not the absence of strife. We said this a few weeks ago. You show up in the mall, there are a lot of people in the mall, and you don't have to fight with any of them. You don't have to go up to Orange Julius and punch the person giving you a, 
an Orange Julius. You don't have to punch them in the nose. You can just be nice and, and walk around the mall and not get into any fights, but it doesn't mean you're in unity with the people in the mall. You're just there. Do you know how easy it is to be part of a church and be just that same way? You're not fighting. You're not in strife, but you're not in unity. Why? Well, if we just consider ourselves spectators and audience members, you won't be in unity. See, God did not call you to be observers of a ministry. God didn't call you to be applauders of a ministry. You know, if you thought that when you got born again, here's what you do, some guy would stand up there and he'd tell you all the thing, great things that God was doing in his life and through his ministry and all the things that he did when he laid hands on the sick and they recovered. And you, your job was to sit in the chair and clap for that guy. You misread the whole thing. Because God did not call one dude and then everybody else to cheer them on. That's not the church. That's not what he called us to. In fact, the, the, there are many gifts in the body, and, and we see that in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. We see a bunch of gifts, and we see five in the book of Ephesians. There's a lot more than five, but the five in the book of Ephesians are called out especially because they're gifts to the church. And those gifts, they said, are different because here's their purpose. They are for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. So there are gifts that God gives the body, and the people that are standing up on a stage or a pulpit or, or, or a radio program or whatever they're doing, their job is to equip the rest of the saints to go and do actual ministry. Does that mean that the person standing up doesn't get people born again in his own time? No, he does that. Should be doing that. Should be sharing the gospel and proclaiming the message of Jesus, but he doesn't do it as a pastor. I don't, I don't share Jesus as a pastor. I share Jesus as a believer. That's what I do. That's what you should do. Uh, uh, you know, because there, the, just because you're a pastor or an evangelist or a missionary or whatever, you're not, there's no such thing as a professional Christian. Because if you're a professional Christian, what that means is you're doing what you're doing because you get paid. And Jesus said, the people that are doing what they're doing because they get paid will run away when things get tough. He called them a hireling instead of a shepherd. If somebody's a hireling, when things get tough and the, and the enemy comes and the wolves come and threaten you, Instead of caring and laying down his life for the sheep, he'll run away because the, the money is the only reason he's there. That's why, it, uh, and I don't want to criticize, I don't want to get into any um, bashing. That's why I always makes a little nervous when uh, you see classifieds for ministry positions. I understand it's important because sometimes God could use those classifieds uh, to get somebody's attention. I believe that, sure. I understand that. But I have had some encounters with believers where uh, they're on a praise and worship team because of the 50 bucks a week they get. And that's not good. Is it wrong for the church to pay somebody 50 bucks? That's not my call. If God told them to do it, you do that. But is it wrong to do it because you got 50 bucks? Yes, it is. <laughs> just as much, and, and I don't want to shock you, but just as much as it would be wrong to pastor so that you can have a paycheck. Anybody who's really called as a pastor should be willing to stay if the paycheck stopped and just trust God. Now, is that right? Well, you know, the Bible says it's right. Uh, the Apostle Paul said it very clearly. It's right that those who preach the gospel full-time would make a living from it, would, would, would be supplied for. He says that's biblical. He said, in fact, when the Apostle Paul said it, he said even Jesus said that. But that's not why you do what you do. And that, and that very same 
section where he says that. He said, I didn't take any money from you because I needed to prove to you that I wasn't doing it for the money. So we got a little bit off track there, but I want to tell you there's no professional Christians, and none of us are in any way less qualified, or I shouldn't say that, but less called to ministry. None of us are less called to ministry because you have a job somewhere else. I, I, I mean straight out, in Lloyd Minster, you, you tell me, what's the biggest mission field we've got around here? The oil field. Believe it. Not only the oil field, but, but there's construction. There's things like Chance and his crew on concrete. There, there, are, there are a lot of places in Lloyd Minster that need the gospel, and there are a lot of people that wouldn't hear the gospel if nobody went to them. So do I believe that working in the oil patch can be a ministry? Absolutely I do. But that's why it's important that you get favor with God so that that schedule doesn't become about the money, but it becomes about ministry. And uh, I believe that God's called some of these guys, some of you guys, into wherever you are, whether it be the service industry, the oil industry, agriculture, ranching, whatever God's called you to, make that a mission field. Because there are, there are a lot of people that wouldn't automatically come in here. Now they will. I believe the Spirit of God's drawing them, but, but God has called you to where you are for a reason, for a purpose, and uh, you're on assignment. You're an ambassador in that place. And uh, if you get a paycheck for it, praise the Lord, that's extra. Right? That's good. It's nice to get a paycheck, but that's not why you're doing it. Let's, uh, I, I said Second Peter, but would you, would you forgive me if I, if I told you to turn to First Peter? Yes, you would. Good. If you said no, we'd have to teach on something else tonight. <laughs> First Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> I love 1 Peter. I think it is, uh, so 1 Peter chapter 2, I apologize. I love 1 Peter because it's, it's an end times message to the church. Now, when I say end times, you realize the end times pretty much started <laughs> with the early church, <laughs> that the, the final age began with them. Now, we're, are we closer to the to return of Christ? Absolutely. That's the way time works, right? Every day you do get closer. You can't really go backwards uh, unless you're just living in sci-fi world. So we're getting closer, obviously, but uh, that doesn't mean this, this age, the, the, the end, remember, that uh, the prophet Joel prophesied about the latter days. And in that prophecy, he talked about some things that would happen. And Peter said, on the day of Pentecost, this is the beginning of that. This is part of that. So the day of Pentecost started a new age. And uh, don't get thrown off by the term new age. It started a new uh, age of the, of, of God's, in God's plan in history. And this is the final one. This is the final one before the return of Christ. We're part of it. The age of the church. And I believe that God is desiring to do things through the church. The book of Ephesians says that His desire is to make known to principalities, to powers, to make known to all these authorities and forces, to make known these things through the church. That the manifold wisdom of God would be made known through the church. The church is His instrument in these last days. And we are way more powerful together than we ever would be apart. And so here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, verse 1, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit 
and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Can we do that? Put aside malice. That means if you've got drama going on with somebody, put it aside. It says all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, slander. Do you notice that all of these things kind of have to do with your relationship with somebody else? These are really not about you and God. Hypocrisy could be an exception. But almost all of these have to do with you and other people in your life. It says you put away all these things, because why? If you read the rest of the New Testament, those are things that are evidence of the old nature. Those are the things that you're not a part of yourself. We put aside the old self in its ways. Those, that flesh was crucified with Christ. You're not bound to any of these emotions anymore. If you feel these emotions... The Bible says in Hebrews that we have a great high priest who's felt all the same things we feel. He's gone through all the same things you'll go through, and he was without sin, so therefore let's come to him. If you need help, you come to him boldly, and you ask for help. You'll receive grace and mercy in the time of need. So we have a high priest that's able to, to sympathize with this, and if you start to feel envy creeping up in your life, you have a high priest that can deal with that. No, it's, that's, not your, that's not your new nature. That's who you used to be. You put that aside and you put on the new self. And here's what it says. And, and really, if we were to go to Ephesians 5, for instance, we'd see that, that the things that are in the new self, or Colossians 3, the things that are in the new self are directly opposite of the things that were in the old self. So the answer is not just not being envious. Do you know what the answer is? Replace envy with thankfulness. If you do that, there's no room for envy in your life if you're thankful. If you're grateful, there's no room for this other stuff. So don't just say, well, I'm not going to be envious. Begin to be thankful. If you start to feel envious, begin to thank God for what he's given you. And, hey, let's go out on a limb. Begin to thank God for the person that you're feeling envious about. And thank God for blessing them because they're part of the same body as you. And if one of us, the Bible says, if one of us rejoice, we all rejoice. So here it says this. It says, we put all these things aside like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. How many tonight have tasted the kindness of the Lord? Good, good, good. So do you have that longing for the word? If you don't, then recognize that 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 is the uh, key to growth. It's the key to your sustaining life. That that word is able to enable you and empower you and cause you to grow. So once you get a taste of it, you will long for it. Make it a part of your life. And here's what he says. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also. So the first living stone is who? Who was the stone rejected by men? Jesus. Yet he was choice and precious to God. The Bible says the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now it says this, you also as living stones are being built up. So you weren't instantly built, were you? Do you notice that phrase being built up? That's over time, isn't it? Being built up means I start being built, built, build, 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 build. God is building continually. You are being built up as a spiritual house. So each one of us is a living stone that builds a spiritual house. Now, what are we going to use that house for? What kind of house is it? It's not a residence for 
a person to live in. It's not that kind of house. It's house in the sense that the tabernacle was a house. It's a place. What is it going to house? The presence of God. Because here's what it says. It's a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Now, just in the old covenant, just like in the old covenant, the priests went into the tabernacle, they went into the temple, and they ministered to the Lord, and they, the presence of God was there. The, the altar was there. The covenant was there. As they went in and ministered to the Lord, the Lord ministered to them. The sins were forgiven, all these other things. Now, we, according to the book of Hebrews, are never going to have to offer a sin sacrifice ever again. You never have to do that. You never have to pay penance. You never have to offer something to God to make something up to Him. Jesus did that according to the book of Hebrews. It says He did that, made one sacrifice once. So that speaks to time. He did it once. It only needs to be done once. And for all. So that means everybody that will partake in that sacrifice, everybody that will accept His free gift, never has to make a sacrifice again. Now, if you rejected His free gift, here's the other side. He says there's no longer going to be a sacrifice for you. The downside is, if you rejected Jesus, you couldn't make your own sacrifices anymore because the old is being done away and the new came in. So here's, here's what he's saying. We're living stones, each and every one of you. But is anybody here content to live in a house made of one stone? Now, I don't mean a stone that you carved out. I mean like a brick. And this is your covering. You can just put it over your head. Now I've got a brick. And this is my house. It's dysfunctional. It doesn't work. And it's not worthy of the glory of God. Don't you think God deserves a house that's worthy of His name? He thinks so too. And He picked you. What we're going to read in a moment, and we will get there, but I'm just going to make reference to it right now, is that there are two references in the book of 1 Corinthians that talks about us being a house for for the temple for the Holy Spirit. Now, we're familiar especially with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which says, don't you know your bodies are a temple for the Holy Spirit, right? So we, we use that to say, okay, this body houses the Holy Spirit. I'm going to respect it. It says, therefore, glorify God in your body. So I'm going to uh, glorify God in this body because it holds the Holy Spirit. This is pretty cool. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians 3, it says, don't you know, and when it says you, it's plural. And we've talked about this before. The English language is is missing something valuable, at least the northern English language. I'll tell you what the South has, because it's July 4th, we'll we'll, we'll brag on on our southern friends for a moment. What the South has that we could use is a plural form of you. Y'all. Y'all. I like that. See, I grew up with southern parents, so I knew what y'all meant, and it would make things a lot less awkward. I tell you, as a teenager who loves the Lord, when you got a bunch of your friends there and you want to tell them you love them with the love of Jesus, there's girls and guys, it's nice to have a plural form of you. Because if you just say, I love you, then somebody could catch that the wrong way. Oh, he loves me. (laughs) Or, you know, whatever. I'm not saying anybody did that. Um, (laughs) But it's so nice to be able to say, I love y'all. And then everybody goes, oh, he loves all of us. Right. In French, we have, we have two and we have vous. You know, okay, well, that's plural. Well, in the Greek language, it's the same way. There's a plural form of you. And so for the sake of us just tonight, let's make an exception. We're going to be Southerners for one night. Can we do that? Let's just imagine Paul saying, don't y'all know that y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit? 
So in 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about you individually are a temple for the Holy Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians 3, which we will read in a moment, he says, you guys, there's a Canadian way to say it. Don't you guys know that you guys are the temple? It's just harder to say that way. But he says, don't you, you guys, you people, you all know that you are all the temple of the Holy Spirit together. You, plural, are a temple for the Holy Spirit. What kind of house does the Holy Spirit deserve? The great thing is, is that he's the one that formed you. He's the one that made you. So there's nothing in this chapter or scripture that criticizes the quality of the stones because they're made by God. God's not judging you and saying, well, you're a crummy stone and you're a good stone and you're going to break pretty easy. No. Here's what he's asking us to do. To recognize and value one another as fellow living stones and not be too stuck up to not be joined together and fitted together. Because here's what he says. You are living stones to build a spiritual house. A spiritual house requires spiritual people, doesn't it? A spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Now, who's the priesthood? We are that too. Did you know that? The Bible calls you a holy priesthood, a royal nation, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, sorry, a people for God's own possession. So here, I know it's tricky, but you're the stones that make the house, and you're also the priests that go into the house. Now, I hope your mind's not blown right now, but imagine you're making the house, but you're also the people in the house. You're the spiritual priesthood, the, the holy priesthood, and what do we do? We offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here's the deal. What are our sacrifices? Well, like we said, there will never be another sacrifice for sin. We're not offering guilt offerings or guilt sacrifices. God will not accept those from you anymore because Jesus made those once and for all. What are we offering? Well, the Bible talks about your body as a living sacrifice, your life as a living sacrifice. It talks about the praise, the fruit of your lips giving thanks as a sacrifice. So there are a lot of things you give to God. He considers sacrifices, and the reason they're acceptable the reason they make the cut is because of Jesus Christ. You know, in the Old Covenant, the priests had to wear a mitre. And that was something that, you know, you'd, you'd stick on your forehead. And that was something that, you know, they'd also have things on their breastplate. And, and the reason for this was that when you offered sacrifices, uh, the Bible said even the offerings that we gave were tainted by sin. Because sinful people touched these things. So even the, even the offering that you brought for sin was tainted by sin. Boy, is this exhausting or what? So the high priest had something on his body that God took as a symbol of what Jesus would do, and it cleansed your sacrifices. So even though your sacrifices were flawed and imperfect, God received them as if they were perfect. Cain and Abel brought, both brought flawed sacrifices to God. Why? How do we know they were flawed? Well, because the world was already under a curse. There's no perfect, there was nothing perfect left. The world was under a curse, and yet Abel's attitude towards God was right. His heart towards God was right, and so God received that offering, that sacrifice, as if it was pure and clean. Cain's was not. So when you offer something to God, realize it's going to be flawed sometimes. We know that because we, we're all supposed to sing in church. 
right? And it's the fruit of our lips giving thanks as a sacrifice to God. And we all know that sometimes our songs are flawed. Sometimes those notes we didn't hit. And, and you say, God, you know, how is it that you accept my sacrifice? How is it that you enjoy my singing? Well, guess what? The best singer in the world cannot compare to the angels in heaven. So God's not judging on the same things we judge by. I believe that it's a sweet-smelling incense. It's a sweet sound to his ear when somebody in the integrity and honesty of their heart, the purity of their heart, offers up a sacrifice to God. And if you're off-key... You may be more, God may see that as a better sacrifice than that person who's singing perfectly, but their heart's not fully there. God's not judging by pitch or tone or by any of these things. He's judging by the heart. So we all know there's flaws in what we give. We know there's flaws, but they're made acceptable through Jesus Christ. Where are these sacrifices supposed to be made? In the house, right? Well, it doesn't just mean in this building. But the context for the sacrifices that God wants from you are supposed to be within a spiritual house that's made up of living stones. Here's what I'm getting at. If you're the Lone Ranger and you think you don't need people anymore, you don't need church, you, I can read my Bible, I can listen to, I can watch internet uh, TV and, and, and be part of an internet church and I don't need people and I can, I can just take care of myself spiritually... Those sacrifices are not in the right place. They're not coming from the right place because they're supposed to be made within a house that's made up of other people. And we're meant to be part of the same. No, just like one brick, one stone does not make a house, so one person cannot make a church. And so God calls you to a group of believers. Now realize this, even though we consider ourselves a church, we are not the church. We're part of the church. So that means that, that, that us and the church across the street and the church down the street and the church across town are all part of the same church. As long as we confess Jesus as Lord, as long as we believe the basic tenets of the gospel and, and are called into His family, we're part of the church. And it's wrong and uh, dysfunctional for us to say we can do it all alone. And I can be my own church. And I can be my own spiritual uh, leader and follower and feeder and all of those good things. And, you know, we could all fall into that trap because, you know, working with other stones, what happens when you're building a house and you put two stones together, but they don't quite fit? What happens? You have to grind one of them down a little bit and try to and wedge them in. And, and it's not always comfortable because... Because you've got to fit together with other people. And you say, but I just want to be me. I just want to be myself. And I am a triangle stone. Well, God has made you to fit somewhere. And if he made you to fit somewhere, it doesn't matter what you want to be. It, the Bible says he placed everybody in their place as he willed. Not as you willed, not as your pastor willed, not as your grandma willed, not as your mom willed. But as he willed. He's the one that picks where you go. And guess what? You're going to be happiest where he puts you because that's what he actually designed you for. Now, sometimes the reason we feel so out of place and, and, and we just don't ever feel like we fit is because we haven't found where God really wanted us to stick us. You might even be in the right church. You might be in the right congregation, but, but you're, you're in the wrong place as far as what you're doing, as far as, as far as your role could be it, or it could just be your flesh fighting, saying, I want to do my own thing. I, I don't necessarily want to fit with all these other people. 
I want to do my own thing. I want to just be my own thing. Well, you know, God's called us to be unique, and you are unique. You're uniquely gifted. You're uniquely called, and yet he called us to fit together. And when you fit together, you build a house. And when you build a house, there's a place for us, the spiritual priests, the royal priests, the holy priests, to offer sacrifices to God. And that is important. It should never be taken lightly because God is dwelling in this place. God inhabits the praises of his people. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst. The Bible says it, how good and, and blessed it is for, for brethren to dwell together in unity. He talks about the anointing that's attached to that. Oh, it's so important that we get together on the same page and find where you fit and, and actually work together. But, it, you know, the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron. How many of you have read that scripture? As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Well, we like that, don't we? Because it means that, that I, somebody else is going to help me to grow in the Lord. Somebody's going to help me to be sharp for God. Have you ever seen iron sharpened? Have you ever seen a chef sharpen his knives? Now, those are, may not be iron, but same sort of idea. What's happening? There's friction. They're rubbing together. It may not always feel nice. If you're like me, I, I don't like friction. I like confrontation. Sometimes I say, God, why exactly did you call me to be a pastor? <laughs> I, I don't like confrontation. And sometimes you've got to be right in the middle of confrontation when you're a pastor. And I don't like it. But, you know, sometimes there are times where I'm not talking about strife. I'm not talking about un, ungodly division. I'm talking about somebody who's different than you that you normally wouldn't hang out with that's got a different idea than you and God puts you two together and your personalities clash but when you let God into the relationship you may grind together a little bit but all of a sudden you start to fit together and you sharpen one another it doesn't always feel good but thank God you come out better and stronger now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 3 actually well, let's start in 1 Corinthians 2 and, and we'll get to 3 and I promise I won't I won't uh, dilly-dally through it. We'll, we'll get through it in a good amount of time, but uh, how many of you know what 1 Corinthians 2 is about before we even get there? No shame if you don't. Talks about the Spirit. Talks about knowing the will of God, right? It's pretty cool. 1 Corinthians 1 starts out with these great thoughts because the Corinthian church was uh, a church where the Corinthian church was a church that was being fought over. And we're going to see in a moment there was a church that was divided. It should never have been divided. But there were false apostles that came in and tried to start their own groups and their own factions. There were people within the church that started their own groups and started their own factions. Apostle Paul opens up the great letter by saying, you guys, none of us were hot shots when we started. He says, not many of you were wise, not many of you noble, not many of you were mighty, according to the flesh. But God had something better for you, and because through him you were, you know, through Jesus you were made righteous and you, redemption and wisdom and all of these things. And he says, when I came to you, I didn't try to use fancy speech to get on your good side. I didn't try to impress you with how much I knew. I made up my mind to know nothing amongst you except Christ and him crucified. He says, because even the wisest person in the world is 
stupid compared to God. <laughs> he said, even, this, even the, wisdom, the wisdom of the world is foolishness when you compare it with God. Even God's foolishness is, is wiser than the wiser of men. He says, the strongest of men is weaker than God. And so, he says, the wisdom of the world seems smart to the world, but it's really dumb when you see it from God's perspective. So, he says this, and then he says, but there is wisdom amongst the mature. And he begins to talk in chapter 2 about the great will of God and the fact that no eye is seen, no ear is heard, no heart has even, has even grasped what God has for those who love him. Now, some people will quote that to you as, as a reason to believe that you'll never know the will of God. You never could. You'll never know or no eye is seen. But if you keep reading it, what does it say? Now, in fact, let's do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2 says in verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So it was hidden, right? But it says it was predestined, predestined for our glory. So who is it hidden for? It's hidden for you, not hidden from, but hidden for. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood. For if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, who are the rulers of this age? These are some spiritual rulers. These aren't just people. That's talking about the spiritual rulers of this world that the, the, the Bible calls, Jesus called Satan the God of this world. Well, in, fact, in fact, it says in later in the New Testament, the God of this world um, has blinded those so that they believe not. So there's a, there's a, there are rulers and principalities and powers, and Jesus robbed them blind, didn't he? He took all the power away from them, and yet the Bible says in Colossians, if you're still following that old way of thinking, if you're still following the same course the rest of the world is, you're following a course that was set out by the same power that he's talking about here by Satan himself. That the only way to get off that course is to get on God's course. The only way to get off that course is to stop reasoning like the world reasons and start thinking like God thinks. And like God thinks is crazy sometimes, guys. You come to the edge of the Red Sea and you're supposed to somehow figure out how to get to the other side. The wisdom of this world says it doesn't work. The wisdom of this world says get Get freaked out because the Egyptians are behind you and the sea's in front of you and there's no way around. But the wisdom of God opens up the sea and tells you to walk through it. Yes. Now, is that normal, people? What if you told your coworkers that? If there were no way around this situation, no way around that problem, you got a problem, there's no way around it. You were just to say, well, God told me to walk right through it. Yeah, you're nut. You're crazy. That's stupid. But here's what they'll do. What did the Egyptians do after the Israelites walked through? They'll say, oh, I guess it does work. They'll try to follow you. But what happens when they try to follow you? The water falls. They get drowned. So you'll see what happens is you do something God's way, and it doesn't make any sense to the world, 
But after you do it, they try to copy you. And when they try to copy you, it doesn't work for them. And then they say, it didn't work for me. And you go, yeah, it didn't work for you. It worked for me because I trusted the Lord. So the wisdom of God is much different from the wisdom of men. And you're going to have to be used to being crazy sometimes or acting crazy or seeming crazy to the world. That's okay. That's okay. We're all right with that. Now it says this. Just as it is written in verse 9, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and what has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. So it says all these things that no one ever understood, God revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. That means the Holy Spirit inside of you can get to any part of God, can understand even deep things of God. Even the depths of God, the Spirit is searching out. That says this, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. But here's the good news. Now we have received. Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So who's the only one that knows the thoughts of God? Spirit of God. What have you received? The spirit of God. Is there anything that God's hiding from you? Mm-mm. Now, there are things that you, that are there, does that mean you know everything God knows? No, your brain's not that big. But spiritually, you have access to what God that he'll reveal things to you, that you don't have to go around blindly for the rest of your life. Now, there are things that you, you may not be ready to get right away, but if you'll just receive from God, he'll reveal them to your spirit. There are things that click in your spirit way before you get them in your brain. There are things that, I mean, I'll tell you, and I've said this before, but there were things about my dad going to heaven that I understood right here, but I never could put into words to people. When people were wanting to know, explain this to me, and I could not tell you, I just knew right here. There was things I knew. I understood here, but I didn't, I didn't get it here. There's going to be things in your life that are like that. Your brain's got to catch up to your spirit. And guess what? We're going to find out in a moment that there are things that are spiritual things that you understand by the spirit that aren't meant to be explained to everybody. It depends who you're talking to. That's hard for people to hear sometimes. But not everybody is supposed to hear everything you know. Jesus said to his disciples, there are, there's many things I want to tell you, but you're not able to hear them right now. A spiritually mature person, Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine. Don't throw what's holy to dogs. You don't tell everybody everything you know. Because if they're not spiritual, they won't get it. And Jesus said, they'll turn around and get mad at you and try to trample you over. So here it says, it says God revealed these things. It says that, that we've received the Spirit of, from God, that we may know the things freely given to us by God. That's why we have it, so that we can know what God's freely given us. Which things we also speak. Now realize, he's talking to the church, but when he says we, he's not just talking about the church. He's mainly talking about him and the other apostles that God has sent to this church. Now understand that when he talks about this, we've received the Spirit of God, we've all received the Spirit of God, right? So he's not saying you guys didn't, just, just us. 
But now he's talking about the things that they're speaking. And he's talking as an apostle whose job it is to reveal some things to these people. He says, we speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom. So there are things that you understand by the Spirit. And when your unsaved friends ask you, there are things that you can explain and there are things that you can't explain. There are things that will not be, you'll not be able to explain them without faith, without somebody who's hearing it, hearing it with faith. And you're wasting your breath. And it says, we speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. This could better be translated, and some of your Bibles have it in the margin. It could better be translated as interpreting spiritual thoughts for spiritual people. Now I'm going to, I realize that I might need to explain that real quick. That means that there are things, there's a wisdom taught by God, there's things that come out of the Spirit that not everybody can get and not everybody's supposed to get. It says our job, when God shows us these things, is to interpret spiritual thoughts for spiritual people. That you have to be spiritual not just to preach it, but to hear it. Are you ready for that? Do you want to be that person who can receive from God? Because, you know, Jesus, some of his best teachings, he didn't tell everybody. He told 12 guys. Some of them he told 70 guys. But he didn't tell everybody everything he knew. And there are things that you can hear and there are things that you can't hear, but you have to be spiritual. And remember, the house that God's building is a spiritual house. You've got to think spiritually. And he says this, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Have you ever tried to explain every single thing that goes on in church to your unsaved friends? Does that always go over real well? No, not always. Sometimes they're going to look at you like you're crazy. But the Bible predicted this. Come on, guys. Some of our Christian friends would be shocked if Jesus were to come here and do what he did in the, in the Gospels. I mean, I've got, I've got Christians, brothers and sisters that I love very much that mock people for doing something a little bit weirder. When our Savior, Jesus, healed the deaf guy by giving him a wet willy. Now, I guarantee that would make Christian websites bashing him for that. Another guy, he spits in the mud, rubs it in his eye. Tells him <laughs> he, he can only, he just put mud in his eye, then told him to go wash it off. <laughs> that seems mean, doesn't it? <laughs> go find this pool. Where? Just find it. People, I see people as trees. Close enough. Find the pool. Go wash it off. You know, there are just things that Jesus did that wouldn't make sense to everybody. But it says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for, for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Now it says this, but he who is spiritual appraises all things. That means you're able to judge and see what's going on, yet he himself is appraised by no one. It means that somebody in the world... You can, you can see what, why people in the world act the way they do, but they are never going to be really able to get why you do what you do. And it says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he would instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, now listen, he says, 
uh, that, that God revealed all these things, that the great will of God, the deep will of God, the depths of God, that we can know these things. Praise God, that's awesome, right? Does that get you excited, that you can know everything, that, that God could show you His will, reveal deep things to you? And he says the way he's going to do it sometimes is speaking directly to your spirit and sometimes through somebody interpreting something spiritual and preaching it to you as spiritual people. But listen to this. I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. So all this great knowledge we were just talking about, all this great wisdom we were just talking about, he says I couldn't give you any of that. But as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink. Now, I've heard people say there's no such thing as a fleshly Christian, but this verse says there is. It's just when you're being fleshly, you're acting like a baby. Do we want to be a baby? Do you share your deepest secrets and plans with your babies? No, you don't. <laughs> Unless you just do it just to talk to somebody. But you don't expect them to comprehend what you're saying. You don't expect them to give you advice. You don't expect them to weigh in with some nugget of truth. In the same way, he couldn't preach to them as spiritual people, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they were so immature? Why do you think they couldn't receive? Here's what it says. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able... Some people will blame the preacher because he's not preaching deep enough. But if I'm reading this correctly, sometimes he's not preaching deep because you're not ready to hear it. But it says this. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. What was so fleshly about them? Here's what we need to get at tonight. Here's the goal of tonight is to find out what, what prevented them from hearing the deep word of God. What prevented them from growing? What prevented them from being mature in Christ? It says they were fleshly, but that could mean a lot of things, right? How did that fleshliness show up? Since there's jealousy and strife among you. Are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? The big issue in this church was jealousy and strife. God had called them to be put together, but there were things breaking them apart. And we're going to see what that looked like. Here's what he says. For when one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Apollos was another good preacher, just like Paul, but a different style. Now, some scholars tell us that all these people named at one point in time might have pastored this church or might have ministered to them for a time. You see, Paul started this church. But history tells us that, there's, that Apollos came after and and. Took, you know, when Paul left, Apollos came and ministered to this church. And you know, every time you've got a, a pastor that changes, every time there's a new minister, people pick favorites. Some people like Paul. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's got a certain style about him. And, you know, he just kind of shoots it, tells it like it is. And they like that, tell it like it is. And then Apostle Apollos comes along. And Apollos ministers, and he's, the Bible tells us he was more refined, a little bit more educated, and some people like that because it makes them feel smarter. That's my favorite preacher. I like, he's up here, you know, he's, he's more educated, he's, he's, got, he, he's a little bit more dignified. Then it talks about, well, Cephas, which was Peter, but there's a reason they call him Cephas, that was his Hebrew name. 
And some people liked that because he was a little bit more like, like good old-fashioned Hebrew preacher. He you know, appealed to the Jews and maybe was a little bit rougher, maybe a little bit harder, maybe a little bit more strict or stern. And they, some people liked that. You know, hit me hard, preacher. You know, they liked that. Don't let me get away with anything. Everybody's picking favorites. You know what happened? When we pick favorites, factions, divisions. I'm sorry, guys, but you probably shouldn't have a favorite preacher. You can have people that you like, but you have one that you say, this is my guy. Whatever he says, I like. This is a person I listen to. I got all the books. I listen to them all the time. It's okay to like, to like certain men and women of God and to listen to their their, their sermons and to, and to really be fed by them, but you're, you're stepping over a line when you start saying, oh, man, everything they say, that's what I, I mean, that's what I get into. This is my, my kind of guy. I got everything. You know what happens? They become the person you look to. They're the person you identify yourself by. When someone asks you what you believe, you talk, you say, that guy. Unfortunately, what happens, and I've seen it over and over in churches, over and over, this is nothing new, divisions, factions. This person's, these are fans of this guy, these are fans of this lady, these are fans of here. And they start forming their own clubs and separating themselves over sometimes very minor issues. It's not worth it. Can you listen to other ministers? Yeah. Can you buy their books? Yeah. Can you like their books? Yes. Can you like their ministry? Yes, you can. You can watch them every week. But don't start picking favorites, saying, well, this is, this is it. This is the guy. I mean, everything he says. Because what starts to happen is you start dividing yourself from other people, picking favorites and splitting up the body of Christ. We're not called to that. It says when they started doing that, they acted fleshly and carnal. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted Apollos watered. You see that they worked together. They both had a part to play. One's not more important than the other because it says, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Boy, that's a shock for a minister. You're not anything. But God who causes the growth. He's the only one we're, we're supposed to boast in or brag on is God. So guess what? I mean, this is, he, he says, what are we but servants? And later he's going to tell us, we belong to you. Why are you saying I belong to him? I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. He goes, you got it backwards. We belong to you. In fact, all things belong to you. He says this, he says, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's what? God's building. I'm sorry, I didn't, you didn't know whether I was going to tell you to repeat that or go on. Anyways, you are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. So he's happy that somebody else came along and built on that foundation. He says, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
You start building a church on something else, it may be popular, but it's not going to last. It says, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Now these are all very different, aren't they? What do you think would be cheapest and fastest? The wood, hay, straw probably, right? That probably would be built a little bit faster. It would be built cheaper. It would go up quicker. It would grow faster. But we're not going to be judged on how big something got as ministers. When we come before Jesus, he's not going to say, how big did your church get? He's not going to say, how many people listen on the Internet? He's going to say, did it survive? Did it last? Where's the fruit? He doesn't. He's not really going to ask, how big did it get? He's not going to guess. Get, he's not going to ask, how big was your building? How, how cool was your sound equipment? Did the youth have their own building with lighting? He's not going to ask this stuff. He's going to say, when everything came down, when the fire of circumstance and the fire of eternity tested your work, what survived? He says this. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. Fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he's built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself, thank God, will be saved, yet so is through fire. Here's what we were talking about. Don't you guys know, don't y'all know, that you are a temple of God. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you guys, you all. Plural. You hear this? He means this, he's saying this passionately. Don't you know that you guys make up a temple that God lives in? This isn't just church. God lives in this temple. Not this building, but us. And you say, of course he lives in us. He lives in me. Yes, but there's a, a broader sense that the Spirit of God dwells in a group of believers who have been fitted together. Yes, he lives in you individually, but he lives and dwells and inhabits a group that will join together and say, we are built on Christ, nothing else, and we brag on him. And here's the big thing, here's the the, the total thing, is that it doesn't matter uh, how fancy it looked, how big it got, how fast it went up. What matters is what will survive. What's going to last eternity? No matter how cool or flashy your programs were, how cool your website was, how neat your media department was, what's going to matter is what's going to stand at the end of eternity when fire has tested it the work, when fire has tested everything else, will what God planted remain? And yes, it will. But what we came up with on our own stuff, it's not going to last. He says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you think he's wise in this age, he must become foolish so that it may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it's written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. How silly it is to boast about this minister or that minister, that pastor, this evangelist, when they all belong to you. You don't belong to them. They belong to you. You say, that's weird. Do you, does that mean you're going to mow my lawn? That's not what I belong to you for. 
means that any gift God gave us was for you, not for us. Not for the building up of a man's ministry, not for the exalting of a person, but for you. And you've got to realize that we all belong to Jesus. Here's what it says. Whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, the whole world belongs to you. Or life, or death, or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. There's the order. So how silly would it be for us to begin to divide ourselves? For us to begin to break apart trying to build our own little kingdoms? No church can survive when it's divided against itself. Because Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. No church will survive it. That's why the Bible is very strict. I'm going to tell you, the Bible doesn't say kick out the liars. It doesn't say kick out the, the, kick out the thieves. Do you know who God says don't even have dinner with? Those that cause division. Don't even eat with them. There are people that are pretty messed up, and the Bible says restore them with gentleness. But it says those, mark those that cause division. Have nothing to do with them. Don't even share a meal with them. You realize how important it is that we are allowing God to fit us together and to stay together. Nothing is worth breaking that apart. No faction, no group, no little kingdom. Because unless this thing is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, we're wasting our time. I say all this tonight, not because you're doing anything wrong, but because you're doing something right. I want you to know, and I know we went to a lot of places, and I hope you didn't get lost. But I want you to see the, the theme that God is building. And you may remember a couple years ago, or about a year, year and a half ago, we talked about John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We talked about the word destroy. Both in English and Greek, it means the same thing. To unbuild. To construct something means to build it, right? To destruct means to tear it down. The word that's used for destroy in the Greek language means very much that, something that was built becoming ruins. You have to understand that Satan's design for you, yes, is to steal, yes, is to kill, but also to destroy because God's been building something. God's been building a house. God's been building a church. God builds the church. We don't build it, he builds it. Now Ephesians 4 says the church builds itself up in love, but that growth, that building comes from God. God's the one doing all that work. Here's what Satan would love to do. And if you heard anything tonight, let's hear this last part. That what Satan would love to do is to unbuild what God has built. And God built you together with other stones, 
other parts of the body. He put you there. He put you in a place where you would grow. And you know how Satan would love to destroy that, to unbuild that by letting a little bit of strife come in here, a little bit of jealousy come in here, a little bit of competition come in here. Any of that will unbuild what God has built. And you've got to resist that with everything you've got. Not only that, but the Bible says you've got a part to play in edifying. Edifying is a fancy word for build. And it says, don't speak any word which is unwholesome, but rather speak a word such as is able to minister grace for the moment that is, able for, that is good for edification, for building up. Your words are contributing to God's building. Your words are going to help build things in the church. They're going to help build things in people's lives. And Satan wants to come and tear them down. What you've got to do is say, if he came to steal, kill, destroy, I know Jesus came to bring life. We are living stones, and I speak life into these stones right now. And you, are, you have a power to speak life, to speak the word of God, to build up, not destroy what God's planted. That's so important. I can say this to all of you because you guys are all pretty much part of this church. Now, some of you aren't able to come all the time, but you've been here regularly. And I want to say it's time to be mature, to grow up. And I mean that in a good way. I don't mean that in a you're not growing up way. You are growing up. Continue to grow. Don't let the enemy come and steal what God has done. Don't. Let yourself fall into the trap of being jealous of somebody else's gift. Don't let yourself fall into the trap of, of, of being in strife or division, but stand together and say, this person's rubbing me the wrong way, but maybe God is shaping me to fit with them. And I'm going to just stay here and let love and the grace of God be the grease that lets the gears go together without wrecking each other, without totally burning the engine out. Let the love of God be the oil, the anointing. Remember that how good it is when brethren dwell together. It's like the oil that ran down from Aaron's beard, the Bible says. That same anointing, that same love, that same unity is the oil that will keep people they don't normally fit together, it will keep them moving together and working together. And I believe that this church is meant to be a place where we're built not only up individually, but built up together, grow up together. You have to choose to be spiritual. Choose to be spiritual because the spiritual ones are going to hear what God is saying. Now, what does it mean to be spiritual? Real quick. Be spiritual doesn't mean you're always walking around like you're high or just in a bubble somewhere. You go into the grocery store and don't open your eyes and God leads you to the ice cream and you take it to the front because you know where it is. No, being spiritual means every day you have a choice to listen to your spirit or your flesh, to listen to God or yourself, to listen to God or the enemy, and you choose to say God's right. The Spirit's right. Follow the voice of the Spirit. Follow the Word of God. That makes you a spiritual person. Make every decision based on what God says. So what are we going to do? We're going to stand together. Are we going to let strife come in? No, we're not. Are we going to let division come in? No, we're not. Are we going to pick favorite doctrines? Are we going to fa pick favorite people? No, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give our allegiance, our loyalty to the Word of God, 
through the Spirit of God to Jesus Christ. And you know what? If you find a great book, praise the Lord. I don't have a problem with you having a, finding a great book or a great minister or anything like that. But if it starts to cause division and factions and we start starting forming our own little clubs in the church, something's going to need to change. Because what's more important, what's more important than the next cool thing, the next big fad, what's more important than all of that is that the church grows into the bride and the body that God has called us to be. Some things are just not worth it. The Apostle Paul talked about that with food. He says, is it worth tearing down the work of God for the sake of a little bit of food? It's not worth it. That guy who eats only vegetables may be wrong. That guy who won't eat that meat because he thinks it's offered idols, he may be weak in the faith, but is it worth tearing down the work of Christ for a little bit of food? He says, not worth it. There are things that we're going to have to say. This is another part about being spiritual and being mature. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? What's valuable to me? Just like Pastor Tracy said, what's, what's weighty to me? What's valuable to me? What's, what's bigger in my mind? Let the little things go. Major on the majors, minor on the minors. And focus on what God's doing. We'll be doing it in unity and fitting together. Amen.